All content on this channel is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as professional financial advice. Should you need such advice, please consult a licensed financial or tax advisor. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of information on this channel. Hopefully it works. Otherwise, we're just sitting here talking and no podcast is being made. <laughs> it's fine. I, I still get a buy or sell decision. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then we might have to just pick another random stock and try it out. So, um, well. Yeah, I mean, we uh, all know we're, we're here to listen to you, not to me. <laughs> I don't I mean, I think we're just here to talk. Um so uh, I guess uh, let's do the, because this is the first episode, we should probably try to introduce ourselves. My name is okay. Gil. I've been investing in the stock market for a while now. I think like since the year after I graduated from college. So that's like 2004. So it's about 16 years. So I've, I've seen a, f- a few things in that time and um, I really like investing. So um, now I have my friend here, Eric Sugar. And he is uh, also interested in investing. So we've got a podcast talking about investing. Eric, I don't know what you want to say about this or yourself. That sounds about right. Yeah, I was going to say, I've been, I've been riding your coattails for about 15 years. So it's good <laughs> that we can talk openly and uh, share our notes, uh, which hopefully helps other people who also enjoy investing. Uh, at least uh, get, us, get some, some different insight into some interesting stocks. Very minimal. My goal is that nobody loses money, but I just want to put the disclaimer that both both you and I have um, probably lost large sums of money uh, over the years. So people really shouldn't be following what we're saying um, here. My, yeah. my biggest losses, Gil, have been my biggest losses result from not buying the things you've told me to buy. Oh. So. You can't, you can't, you, you, yeah, you can't pump too much because then we're violating a lot of SEC rules. Okay. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, no, like really, I think we'll, we'll have disclaimers at the front of this thing when we're putting the, uh, po- the post processing of the audio and really like, this is just for entertainment purposes. We just want to hang out and talk about stocks and um, you know, I think, at the end of the episode, the goal is to just talk enough about a stock to figure out whether or not we would personally want to invest in it or not. And this is just for our basically giggles. And um, uh, it is not investment advice. <laughs> Definitely yeah, not totally. investment I mean, advice. Look, this is just us expressing I mean, our yeah. opinions. The stock that we're talking about today is Square. Uh, ticker symbol is SQ. And um, I guess for anybody who is not familiar with Square, um, you know, when we, we both dug into the, 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 the materials beforehand just to like mildly familiarize ourselves with this. And, and my understanding of Square is that like if you look at it from the big picture, um, it's basically a um, financial services company focused on consumers like the little guy. And they're trying to be a bank, but not really a bank, like a cool version of a bank. And my sense is that they're starting like small with baby steps. But 
if you kind of read the underlying message for what they're doing, I think they have like much larger ambitions about where they want to go, but they don't want to scare anybody uh, today. Um, and so they're just taking these baby steps. Um, and then maybe over long periods of time, if X, Y, and Z goes well, they might be um, very different um, in the long run versus where they are today. Yeah. I think when most people think of Square, you know, the first thing that jumps to my head are the readers, right? As a consumer, mm -hmm. that's what you see. You go to a, you go to a small retail, uh, you know, a, a, a seller, uh, and you see, you know, someone has the hardware plugged into their phone so they can take your credit card or they've got the reader itself, the point of sale system, and you see it, you recognize the logo. It's nice. It's very Apple-like, right? So you can kind of mm -hmm. see the brand uh, and you know what they are. Um, that's how I know them. So the nice thing about this uh, podcast exercise is you get to dig in and realize they, they have a lending business. They buy a lot of Bitcoin, all right? They, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they got involved in PPP loans. So to your point, I think it's a much broader commerce ecosystem that they're playing in than just you know, payment processing, which, which yeah. again, opens them up to a lot more competition, but gives them a lot more market potential. Yeah. Like you're right. As you started mentioning all the little things that they do, um, I started forming an image in my mind of this like many tentacled octopus. And I think that's where they are. And the, the, like the challenge for me, if I want to invest in something like this is like, you know, I, I generally, I think, have a preference for things that have a very strong, like, tightly defined focus. So, like, you'll say, oh, you know, Steve Jobs said when he, you know, came back to Apple, you've got, we've got, like, 30 different products. It's useless to work on 30 different things if, you like, 28 of them are going to be crappy. Let's just prune the portfolio, work on three or four things, make them really awesome, and then we'll make, like, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars easy peasy right so like that focus um was something that i i kind of appreciate from the example of steve jobs and and how he turned apple around after he came back from the wilderness and then i look at square and i think you you just kind of like see this octopus that's like dipping its fingers into a lot of different pies and each of those pies are not unguarded there's like multiple competitors putting their fingers in each of those pies too and so i get a little scared about like its um ability to attack on multiple fronts without um that focus but then again maybe later on what we'll realize is that um what looks like many different pies is actually just one big pie um, and that all these microservices that they're doing is actually maybe one big service and that those things yeah. are representative of um, an actual level of focus. Um, so, so I think that's probably a good pivot into what the tentacles are, right? Yes. What, are, what business are they actually in? So, you know, again, we, I, I know them from the hardware business, but again, they're giving those away for free. So that, I don't think that's part of the business. It's more the seller network, right? You have all of these sellers that need uh, to be part of that, uh, you know, uh, that offering mix, which is a mix of hardware and services. They provide analytics. They have, uh, I think, some appointment setting stuff. It's got an, an e-commerce website component, a retail point of, uh, point of sale hardware. They've got tools for restaurants. So I would put that all in this like seller product category, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, and then I think obviously the Cash App uh, is is a really interesting business. Uh, it doesn't, it's not obvious necessarily how that connects. I mean, there's a, a, some synergy there, but it's not obvious, you know, why that's a 
um, you know, I, I could see maybe a, a year or two ago when, when maybe they opened that business, you could say it's, uh, you know, a uh, distraction to your point about focus. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think the cash app is, is, has been a huge growth uh, contributor for them. So I think that's their second tentacle of the business. And then the square capital piece, which is doing a lot of the loans and, and direct deposit and payments and other stuff that's, uh, Maybe like you said, more like a, a cooler version of a bank. Uh, and I, to me, those are the three primary tentacles. You might see others, but th- those are the main categories for me. Yeah, and you know that actually um, reminded me to just put up this slide from the investor update that they had in. I think this is dated March 2020, and I'm on slide three where they organized the business in the way that you mentioned earlier, which is that. They're talking about two different, um, they call it ecosystems. One is called the seller ecosystem and the other one is the cash app ecosystem. Um, As you alluded to, the seller ecosystem really uh, touches upon small business owners and like small to medium, um, maybe even micro enterprises, where a lot of the offerings that Square has helps these business owners. Um, It could be like, um, like invoicing. Um, it could be just helping people take credit card payments. It could be like recurring charges. It could even be like these weird, almost non-financial things, but customer-facing things like um, setting up appointments automatically for like a barber or a hairdresser, right? Or uh, it could be even like the lending that uh, that Square Capital does. Um, if you um, do enough transactions through Square, they get a feel for... Um, how your revenue volume does and they're willing to kind of lend a certain amount of money based on how much volume they can see you putting through their system. So um, they'll be able to do that through the Square Capital. So that's one side of the business. And then the other side of the business is completely like, it feels like it's in a different Venn diagram because I think it kind of is. Um, And that's the Cash App. And that one is a little bit more, not business focused, but like focus on individuals. Uh, It's an app that you put on your phone and it allows you to do a whole bunch of stuff like direct deposit into your accounts uh, through Square. Um, it allows you to like purchase stuff through a cash card. Um, there are these like weird little boosts that we can maybe get into later that give you incentives to like pay merchants um, through the cash app um, and get the boosts. Um, and then you can invest in stocks. And crazy enough, you could buy Bitcoin through Cash App. So <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, so that's the that's the those are the tentacles. Um, yeah. Do you see the Do you see the capital side of the business as part of the seller ecosystem? Uh, to me, it's almost a separate ecosystem because it works with both. And I think the main thing we'll talk about, especially as you try to value a company like Square isn't so much the individual components. It's what happens when you link all of these ecosystems together. Right. Uh, you know, right. what, that that's really the, the secret sauce here, right? If you can connect the cash app direct deposits to your payroll system in the seller network, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you get the network effects from the cash app. Uh, your friends are using it. Your other employees are using it. So now they're kind of employers feel like they want to offer it. Now you have this interesting synergy between these two ecosystems. And I think the square capital piece to me is really a third circle. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you see it differently, but I, I see it as a third circle that also overlaps with a lot of these, but really is independent in terms of like 
you know, uh, lending and, and, and that, that loan piece of the business, I think is a little bit different. It can tie into the seller group, but it also ties into the cash app too. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense. You could, they, they, in terms of the business organization, they, they kind of like lump cap the capital portion into the seller ecosystem on their slides. I think mostly because it's this like weird piece that, kind of falls a little bit more towards the seller side as in these small businesses. Um, but I agree with your point that there is a lot of intermeshing between these things and capital itself, if it's successful, could grow to be um, a very interesting and large business all of its own, like it like literally deserves its own circle. Um, and, uh, you know, an intriguing thing about capital, the square capital is that um, like I've actually experienced it because I've 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 run I use a lot of the Square invoices for like this test prep tutoring business, um, and I just use Square because it's so easy. Um, and uh, they see the kind of volume of transactions that I charge on credit cards for my clients um, in this like little side hustle, um, and they're able to kind of judge okay based on the volume of credit card charges that you do for your little business, um, here's what we can offer you in terms of capital. You can take it or not. And if you do take it, you don't really have to kind of um, pay us on a set monthly schedule, like the way a normal loan would work through a bank. Basically, you just slowly pay off the money that you borrow from us um, at, by, by allowing us to take a little bit of a cut um, on every transaction you charge through Square. So it's not I'm not paying it back on a fixed time basis. I'm paying it back mm. kind of as I as I go about my normal business. And I just don't, you know, take home as much don't money because I'm slowly paying off this loan. Um, but I'm still taking home some money. It's just not as much as I normally would have, right? But then I yeah, also got great. to borrow the capital. So, um, yeah, and then it's you also get all the benefits too because they have, uh, such bigger reach, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, the advantage of working with any bigger, well-connected vendor is, you know, you get all these capabilities, like they can layer, I don't know if you use any of these, but like, um, the analytics they provide, uh, mm -hmm. are, are supposedly top notch, uh, for the, for the payments and, and your, uh, your transactions, which is great. And that's stuff that, you know, most small businesses aren't necessarily good at, uh, mm -hmm. and they can take data from all of their, small sellers and come up with some interesting trends or recommendations, that's really valuable, right? Yeah. Um, I, I have uh, I talked to another friend of mine who runs a small business and uh, he was telling me he uses them to set all of his appointments. Um, just every, that kind of software on the side to buy would, would not be optimized for him. And this is basically ready to use out of the box and it's you know seamlessly integrated into everything else. So having that pinwheel of services is really valuable for a small uh, small starting company. Yeah. And I almost used the square cap, uh, the square appointments. And then I didn't like, I didn't, I, I'm so cheap. I didn't want to pay $15 a month for it or whatever they were charging. Um, and I ended up using this other service, which was like roughly around the same price, but now I'm so used to it. I don't want to switch out, but yeah, there's a lot of opportunity um, for micro. So let me ask you this. Yeah, you're, you're, you're using square. So, uh, you know, on, on your side hustle, um, yeah. 
how how much sensitivity did you have to the price? Because they are a little more expensive, yeah. um, you know, on a, on a transaction basis. Uh, you know, they how much are, do you value this? Like, I, I, yeah. okay, so it's been so long since I last looked at it. Um, I think at the time uh, when I was doing the credit, thinking about credit card processing, um, I had looked at Stripe and then I had looked at Square. And you know, Stripe is actually really good. It's awesome at what it does, um, but it does require a little bit of technical ability in the sense that it's this tool that you embed into, let's say, a website that you build. So if you have a WordPress website for your side hustle, you can integrate Stripe in there fairly well. And I actually use Stripe for a couple of other pieces for like the appointment setting thing where people pay automatically um, when they set an appointment. And that's handled actually through Stripe. Um, and But for like some other portion of my business, I ended up using... Um, yeah, invoices that get paid by credit card. I basically will invoice a client and they'll use their credit card through Square to pay it, to pay it. And that's that feature was not available to me in Stripe. And it's so just the user interface for Square is so easy to use. And um the just like it's just, just the simplicity of it and the convenience. If you're like super busy, um the difference between you know building your own website when you don't know how to code any anything, um, and then integrating Square uh, Stripe payments into it, versus just loading up Square, opening up an account, sending an invoice, and then boom, you get your money. Um, it was worth it to me to just go through uh, Square and just be up and running doing my little side hustle to get money. Um, and not worry so much about like, I don't know, 2.6%. Uh, charge fee on Stripe versus 3.2% in Square. Like the volumes were not enough where the money was going to be super significant um, versus like the time cost and the time burden of building a WordPress size, site from the very beginning and then integrating it with Stripe before I could even charge a customer, that kind of thing. So yeah. um, in my mind, I was actually willing to pay for the convenience, even though um, it was actually costing me um, a bit more uh, uh, on every transaction. Um, yeah, I think so, most people are too, right? I, I, that seems to be the the trend line there: the convenience mm -hmm. and the simplicity. And, you know, that's those are the those are the features Apple won on, right? I think yep. they're they're in the same playbook. And I and I think that simplicity um, and the willingness to pay a little higher fee for a simplicity is good and bad in the sense that. Um, I think if I were really huge, like I was charging, I was taking in like millions and millions of dollars of revenue every year, then, you know, 2.6% versus 3.2% on my credit card charges, like that difference ends up being significant enough where I, I actually might be strongly motivated to start doing, um, you know, switching over to a lower cost uh, credit card processor. Um, but if at smaller volumes, the it's fairly negligible and it never becomes painful enough for me to switch. So that actually might be good in some sense, but also bad in, in the sense that um, that means that most of the businesses that want to use um, Square are actually not these larger businesses. They're right. like literally small businesses or micro businesses, as right. my side hustle would be um, classified as. And... Um, like it's going to be harder for Square to say to give a stronger value proposition to bigger businesses that do larger volumes and say, look, you can pay more so that you can get this pretty interface, but it costs you X amount of dollars every year. I think that's a lot harder of a proposition. 
And so they might actually feel pricing pressure to be more competitive if they want to migrate upwards to the to the medium enterprise and the large enterprise, right? It's not like Costco's gonna Yeah, I think that's what you see. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say it's not like Costco is gonna, you know care about the prettiness of the interface, they literally will strong arm you to like lower the credit card processing fee as low as you could possibly make it. And maybe even force you to taking a loss on the volume just because they're Costco, right? So these are hardcore businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that brings up a really interesting point to me. The the thing that jumped out for me when I was reading uh, their last investor materials from, I think it was the end of Q2, they haven't put out Q3 yet. Um, they're, you can see it in the tone of the words. They're trying very hard to move the mix of, of GPV, right? Their, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, their, their gross payment volume, right? And they're, they're trying to move that mix upstream. They want less, you know, they're, they're right now they're, 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 they're heavy in, like you said, you know, small and micro businesses, which is great, right? I think that's a, that's a great market to capture, but ultimately if they want to grow, right, they have to capture a larger market. Also that much, uh, if your mix of customers is mostly these small and, and small businesses, you're overly exposed to, to macroeconomic changes. And you talk about COVID or that mm-hmm. impact on the business. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, that can be devastating. So, you know, for them, it, it's, it's, you can mitigate some risk by having a more diverse set of customers. And so the tone of that letter was basically like, Oh, look how much we're improving and look how much more market share we're getting with these larger transactors that are doing more volume through our platform. You know, we're not, we're not only for small business, but, you know, still the vast majority of users are going to be small business on this, which does make that, you know, on the one hand that, that does, you know, that's great that it's so uh, appealing to that, you know, uh, ecosystem. But on the other, it's, it's, uh, it's super risky because, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's an economic downturn, uh, you know, if there's a second wave of COVID or another lockdowns or in the winter, right, I'm in Chicago, uh, what are all the restaurants and retail going to do in the winter? Nobody's going outside. You can't. So like all that restaurant business, all the other, you know, uh, all the, all the array of services and stuff that they have in that small business is going to be impacted dramatically. Those go to zero. Yep. So they, they definitely want to have a more diverse customer base than what they have. But to your point, the pricing gets more significant. Uh, the percentage, obviously, when you're doing more volume through there becomes more significant. And then you have to compete with some much bigger players. And, yep. and that's going to get tough. Yeah, so it that, it's a tough strategic dilemma that I think they're in. And I don't know how they're actually going to end up approaching it in the long run. And to piggyback onto that as well, you mentioned all of the um, disruption caused by the pandemic um, this year. And um, if, you know, they were trying to grow Square Capital, the Square Capital, you know, primarily targets the sellers and they're primarily small to medium business owners. And they were the ones who were um, hurt the most during this pandemic time. And yeah. if the payment is actually predicated upon transaction volumes, but the transaction volumes have dried up for a lot of these people, um, then Square's actually left with bad holding a whole bunch of loan notes that they've made to people that are predicated yeah. on you know them transacting so that you can get a cut of that and then get your loan paid back. And so that's a dilemma. And I think they're double exposed, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, if you go back to the first quarter of this year, they, um, at the time that they were managing 
this ad hoc um, PPP program, you know, giving loans from the government um, to small businesses to help them survive. They also made the separate decision to stop making Square Capital uh, be available to people. So they just stopped making loans. And um, that was probably like a prudent, you know, risk measure, um, risk mitigating measure that they took because there's a lot of there's a lot of lack of visibility in whatever um, algorithms they develop to minimize loan losses. They were all data from transactions in normal years. They had literally never seen data from a new this type of environment, and so whatever algor pricing algorithms they had for loans, they had to throw it out of the water, and they're operating blind. So how can you keep continuing this lending program? So I think all yeah. of their capital loans. Um, have had to stop. And until the whole pandemic is over and until small businesses recover, it's going to be really hard for them to like dip their toe back into the water and say, okay, we're going to continue lending and we're going to feel fairly confident that there's going to be only a 2% loss in our loans and the rest of the 98% will continue paying back at the rates we expected until they get that stability. I don't think that the the capital business is going to be uh, very strong for them, right? Yeah, um, I think that's fair. And I, I think the capital business, again, it's not the primary revenue driver for them, but it mm -hmm. does, it, I think it does imply, you know, what, what their outlook is on that small, you know, small business uh, uh, environment, right? If they're not mm -hmm. making those loans, they're not trusting mm -hmm. the, the, the situation to stabilize. Right, yeah. which ultimately is is the worst thing for them because they're overexposed to that segment. So, yeah, look, if I was a bear on this stock, which which uh, uh, I guess uh, jumping ahead, I'm not. But if I was, uh, th those would be the two key issues. One is overexposure to small business, which scares me a little bit, and mm -hmm. and the other is just how much sensitivity. You know, they're just they're going to be more sensitive to macroeconomic stuff because of that overexposure. Uh, th that's that's kind of my my primary concern, and then again, the pricing piece becomes much much more relevant as you try to drive up market. So if they try to solve problem one, they're going to run into problem two, which is their pricing is is really not that competitive at, with with like larger enterprise solutions. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, yeah, those are those are the only main knocks, and I think we're 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 hitting nailing them on the head here. Yeah, and then you know, moving ahead, let's just take a look at where they are on, let's say, um, the top line numbers. Um, so, you know, if I'm just going through, I'm just kind of, I've got this slide up from the investor presentation that they had in March 2020, and there's this slide on page four that, you know, if you look at it, shows the not the revenues, but the gross profit, which is the what you kind of keep after the initial costs of the revenue or your sales. And um, it's not your bottom line, but it's kind of like a good idea about like what kind of um, economics you have in your business, the gross profit. And, you know, right. Just to be clear that that excludes sales and marketing costs and it excludes yeah. other. Yeah. So it, this is just cost of sale basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if it's like, if you're Starbucks and you sell a cup of coffee, um, the gross profit would be like the money that Starbucks kind of keeps um, after paying for like the cup and the water and the coffee bean and the itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but that gross profit is before like, I don't know, uh, the CEO's salary or like the rent on headquarters or, you know, a bunch of other stuff. Right. So, right. Yep. um, 
Yeah, that's the gross profit. And um, if you look at this slide, what's very interesting is that, you know, you have kind of two different businesses going on. There's the seller ecosystem business and there's the cash app business. Um, the If we focus first on the seller business, um, they started, let's say, in 2015 with $345 million in gross profit. Not bad. Let's call it like a third of a billion, right? That's $345 million. Um, and then four years later, let's fast forward four years later, that, and now we're in the year 2019, and we're asking ourselves, okay, how's the seller gross profit doing? It started off at like a third of a billion four years ago. What is it now in 2019? It's over a billion. It's like a 1.39 billion. Um, or if you want to put it in millions, it's 1,390 million, which, you know, roughly is what, that's just like a 4X in four years. And that's pretty good growth. So like the seller side, if we exclude kind of whatever the impacts were from, from, the, from the, epi the epidemic this year in 2020, um, the seller business is actually, you know, growing its gross profit pretty well. And that whatever that is, it's like a combination of transaction volumes from sellers um, and also whatever subscription payments they have for like the appointment setting. Um, and I think this probably also has whatever uh, money they were making from um, Square Capital um, before they stopped making the loans um, this year because of the pandemic. So um, they were doing pretty well. And then besides that, there's the cash app business, which was just a twinkle in Jack Dorsey's eye in 2015. Like literally you see no revenue for cash app in 2015. And in 2016, you begin to see it kind of like getting a little bit of traction, but it's like rounding error at that point. It's only 5 million of revenue of, sorry, of gross profit in 2016. Um, but you see it growing quite rapidly. So um, in 2016, the gross margin, the gross profit for Cash App was five million, which is kind of like, like a bunny sneezed, and here's five million, which is kind of nothing compared to what seller gross profit was making at that time. Um, but now, fast forward to 2019, which is three years later from 2016. Now, Cash App gross profit is 458 million, starting at. Now, remember, it started at five million in 2016. And then 2019, a few years later, three years later, uh, it's 458. That's like, I don't know, 91, 92 times. Like it multiplied yeah, itself. It's faster than the other business. Yeah, it's almost 100x uh, in three years. Whereas um, I was kind of already impressed with seller gross profit from 2015 to 2019 going 4x. And then, and then now when I look at Cash App, it's like nearly 100x and not in four years, but three years. So Cash App is a bit of a monster just looking at this. I think that's what their intent was, right? Um, and the seller gross profit, while it's an okay, good business, growing strongly is nowhere near maybe what the kind of scaling and super fast growth um, Cash App is doing right now from the 2016 to 2019 timeframe. Now, that's that's what, I'm, what we're all seeing historically, right? But the question is going to end up being like, what is the ultimate future for seller gross profit? And what is the ultimate future for like Cash App gross profit? Like, does one level off while the other one like 
goes on a monster rampage do both of them level off like does competition enter into the game and then begin chopping away at both of them so that neither of them level off they both go to zero or like go close to zero like those are possible futures right and i think that's the question that you'll have to answer for yourself if you really want to um, convince yourself that it's a good investment or that it's a pass and i think that's kind of where my head's at for this right so let me ask you this i mean if, if mm-hmm. you took the cash app as a separate business right yeah. and let's say they they ipo today at that yeah. 458 million in revenue you know yeah. what multiple are you paying for that business oh god right? i i would pay a lot of multiple for that like yeah you know in, in today's environment in today's investing environment um bond yields are like close to zero and if you keep money in your bank account like you get negative returns because of inflation um everybody needs a little bit of growth and if you look at cash app on a standalone basis uh that's pure growth i mean it's nuts and it's like 100x in three years now i'm not saying it's going to continue going 100x maybe you know it can't you know level up as fast but even like i don't know growing at 50 70 percent per year which i think looks doable based on what i'm seeing in here um would still be like hugely valuable when investors in today's economy are starving for growth and the nice thing about like a cash app type business is that you know, I haven't looked at the revenues yet. Like we're not on that slide, but it's probably a fairly high margin business. It's not like, I don't know, making cars, which would be like a 5% type gross margin business. If you're in middle of the road manufacturer, right? Like this is an app and you're kind of moving bits of money around. And uh, yeah, like you're probably going to have some fairly high margins for for this, which means that if it's growing very quickly and then you've got really high margins, that if you're what you're asking about is a standalone business, is actually very very attractive, like significantly more attractive than even the um, the bigger for now business of um, catering to small and medium sized businesses. Um, totally. Yeah. I, I would I would make a bold statement. I bet you the 2020 chart, um, Cash App is making more gross profit than the rest of the business. Wow! I mean, I haven't looked at that, but like we we, we can't take a look at it. I have the the QT shareholder letter. Let's see how they're doing. Let's just fast forward in here, right? So I can see. So the Square Cash App gross profit in Q2 was 281 million. Okay, 281 million. Um, let's see. And that yeah, was in Q2. The... So the run rate for that one yeah, is close Q2. to a billion, right? Like, yeah, if I just yeah. call it 250 yeah. and multiply it by four, Over the run rate is a billion. That's huge, man. I mean, I th- why not call it 300, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I, I, I would say this, yeah. this piece of the business, uh, the, the growth rates and how, you know, it's, it's not... Uh, it's not stable. It's growing every quarter. I think yeah. the, the yeah, it's it's is, like it's, yeah, uh, it, it it's not like it's flat. Uh, you know, it's up eighty six percent from the first quarter. See, that's smoking it. Um, yeah, that's, I'm that's just looking incredible. at those numbers, and I'm very impressed. Now, I'm sure, like that, um, without even looking at the numbers, that whatever the seller grows profit it for this quarter is going to be on a run rate basis lower than what it was in 2019, just because I can't simply 
imagine that it would be better for small and medium businesses this year than it was in 2019, right? But yeah, the, the Q2 seller gross profit was 316. So I, I was a little off, but yeah. uh, I'd say it's fairly close. I mean, you're, you're looking at a business that's basically the seller business looks like a cash cow to, to mm-hmm. feed into marketing and, and innovation for this cash app. That's, that's how I would treat this business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like it. The cash app business makes the seller business look like kind of a slow growing, boring business. That's how the cash app is. Right. Going. <laughs> Which yeah. is crazy because it's yeah. clearly not. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, with, with that, with that viewpoint, right, you can treat the seller business, which is, you know, obviously they're, 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 they're liable to some fluctuation, but fairly stable and, and growing business. And you, you have this explosive component that, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think that's a good pivot too to talk about competition there. I've been using Venmo for the last, I don't know how many years, five years. Uh, and it, it's great. I have nothing bad to say about Venmo. Why am mm-hmm. I switching to Cash App, right? Or if I'm using Stripe, why am I switching to Cash App? I, I've heard about Cash App. They advertise very aggressively, much more so than any of the others, I think. I don't, I don't, I haven't looked at like, uh, the actual, the actual sales and marketing dollars compared across all of these competitors. But mm-hmm. I've heard of Cash App well more, uh, than I have Venmo. Uh, but, you know, what do you think about the competitive landscape there? Because they are growing, obviously, you know, quickly and yeah. incredibly, but there, there are other players there too. I, I think it's interesting. So let's just talk about product, right? I've, I've used Venmo for a while, um, for a few years now. And I get some money and I've sent some money through Venmo. But honestly, unless I'm, I'm sending money or I'm getting money, I never open it. Like there's no point to actually like going into Venmo to do anything but to send money and get money. Um, and because it's actually been not super often that I have to send money or get money through Venmo, um, I'd estimate that I probably use Venmo like... I don't know, six times a year, something like that at the most. Um, so I just okay. have it around. So I, I would, yeah, I'm using it much more frequently than you are. So maybe okay. this would be a good, uh, good contrast. I, I use Venmo at least once a day. Wow. Uh, well, like, are you I mean, doing I, I it pay, to like settle bills with friends and like, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I went out for drinks with friends in a previous world. I would, you know, pay everyone back or, or, you know, settle up on, on Venmo. I pay my babysitter on Venmo. I have my fantasy football winnings on Venmo. I pay, um, you know, I, uh, all the childcare stuff I've got, I don't do any bills. I don't have recurring payments on Venmo, but Mm -hmm. you know, if I go get a haircut and they take Venmo, I'll send them a Venmo. It's much easier, honestly, like compared to, and, and, you know, I used to use PayPal for most of that stuff, but yeah. Uh, and but you it's know, nice PayPal to have an Venmo. app on your uh, phone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, it's just look. I'll tell you this much: there, there's parts. I, I'm not going to go through features of Venmo, but mm-hmm. it's it's super easy to use. It's click, right. click, click. You know, three, four clicks. You've made a payment, which is great. I don't love the social element, but you know, if you look at how you're going to grow a business like this, it's it's really the network effect of your friend uses it. That's where they take payments. That's what you need to use. And right, so I right. found I have, I have yet to run into someone that says in my life, uh, do you have cash app? I don't use Venmo. Interesting. Uh, the reverse many, many, many times. So like right, right, that, right, that's right. one hurdle, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and I think, I mean, do you keep like a sum of money in the Venmo ecosystem because you have to use it so frequently? 
unintentionally, uh, the float sits, but I, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, I just, there's just so much, again, my volume, obviously much higher than yours. Mm-hmm. It, money's in, money's out. Someone might, you know, and again, because you can only link it to one account, one, mm-hmm. one mobile number per bank account, I have to do all my wife's bookkeeping also. I pay her friends <laughs> when she buys something. Or, so I'm doing a You're lot of money stuff on there. For your life. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I'm, that, I'm the, I'm, that happened to me too. Yeah. I, the one time I used Venmo this year was because my wife needed to pay all of her college friends money for like a gift basket they were sending to everybody else. So these random people were just sending me $25 exactly. through Venmo. Exactly. Yeah. And, because I mean, that's, that's, I if you look through my mm-hmm. transaction history, they're all they're all things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but if you look at like my needs, because I use it so sporadically, I don't keep any money in Venmo. As soon as there's cash in there, I'm like, put it to my bank account so I could use it. And so I'm like zero balance in there pretty much all the time. Um, yeah, but it doesn't yeah. really make a difference if you think about it. I mean, it's nice for Venmo because they get the float, but mm-hmm. on the whole, you know, if you overpay, let's say I have 10 bucks in Venmo and I send 50, they just take it out of my bank account. Right. It, the oh, the only difference is the, it, when, when you're sitting on excess and like, right. yeah, every once in a while I'll look and be like, oh man, I have $1,300 sitting in Venmo for no reason. I just take it to my bank <laughs> yeah, and then I go to deposit. zero and I can still make all my payments. So, but it's not a, it's not a big, it's not, it, that's not a limiting factor there that you have to have money in the Venmo app. You know, I, I, I don't think you do. It's, it's linked directly to the bank. It's, it's very similar to cash app in that sense. Yeah. And now going back to Cash App, what I think is very interesting about Cash App is that, you know, um, like I just downloaded it a couple of weeks ago. So I don't have like a strong amount of knowledge about this, but I feel like because it has the investing component, you could buy fractional shares of stock. And because it has the Bitcoin component, there actually might be more reasons that I would naturally go into Cash App to transact than I would in Venmo in my particular situation because um, I just try. Like the first thing I did was I like I said, okay, how easy it for, is it for me to buy ten dollars of Bitcoin? So like it literally took five minutes, and then I was like owning $9 and blah, blah, blah cents of Bitcoin. And I was like, oh my God, this is so easy. And I've tried other stuff like, you know, Coinbase or whatever to try to buy Bitcoin. And they've been doing better job of like making it easier to buy. But Cash App is just like, boom, like zero to, like you go from zero to 60 in like five minutes. What kind of fees do they charge for the Bitcoin purchase? I'm just curious. I think it was on a $10 thing. It was like uh, 20 or 30 cents, something like that. And yeah, so, so it's pretty similar to Coinbase, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not that much different from Coinbase. So like, it's kind of like this thing where they're not super competitive in pricing, right? But it's so easy and you do it mm. from your phone. And it's like, like on Coinbase, I feel like, oh, I got to invest a larger sum of money if I'm going to transact or whatever. On like Cash App, there's like this weird because of the way the user interface is. It kind of makes it like a little game, and you're like, ah, why don't I just put ten dollars into Bitcoin, and then who cares, you know? Uh, you know what it reminds it just, me of a little bit. Mm-hmm. Have you played around with the Robinhood app? Uh, you know what? I've I have it downloaded, but I never finished opening the account, so I don't exactly know <laughs> everything about it. Okay. So yeah. Robin Robinhood is is a, is a lot of this, and I, I think this ties to a larger point um, about adoption. Uh, Robinhood to me was like the harbinger of the every man investor. 
mm-hmm. it opened up this ecosystem mm-hmm. of, hey, I have $150 to invest, right? Yeah. Like now you can buy options, yeah. you can buy stocks, you can buy fractional stocks. So you, you, there's no lim- there's no there's no um, there's no limiting factor to to becoming a a trader, right? Right. Um, And it gives you all the research. It lets you read the news. It's it's all in one place. So it kind of took your traditional brokerage services and moved it to a mobile kind of millennial model. And they Mm -hmm. do a great job of it, by the way. It's so easy to lose money. I mean, I've, I've, (laughs) I've just blown through thousands of dollars trading options on things I don't understand. So uh, I, I, I think, I I think that what that's done though is open up this huge market of smaller investors that are doing tremendous volume on Mm -hmm. Robinhood. And I think when you look at cash app, like, like you said, it's just easier. It's easier to do the Coinbase stuff that you would do on Coinbase. You can do in Cash App. It's easier to do the Robinhood stuff that you would do on Robinhood in Cash App. And yeah. you're also making your payments. So it's bundling all this stuff together. I think the the, the point that that's interesting to me is built into it. I don't think Cash App does. So mm. it's it's a self. It's it's not as uh, what's the word? Viral, right? Like Venmo, mm-hmm. I, I downloaded it because a friend was using it and wanted to send me money. I ha- right. Again, I haven't run into that issue with Cash App. And that's the way you're going to grow is the network effect is you get people pushing it in adoption. I think they cover for that with some interesting things. And I think one, it's it's rounding out that ecosystem that you can do other stuff on there, like by trade, you know, trading Bitcoin or or investing. You know, Those are things you can't do in Venmo. Plus the boost thing, not to be undersold. I think that's a brilliant strategy. I, I think the ability to incentivize purchases and drive you to store, it connects to all the rest of the business. And, and that, that's something where as a consumer, if I can save you know, $10 off my next purchase or whatever, it's, it's that geo-targeting promise all those technology companies were trying to do with you know, targeted ads and targeted text messages and whatever. But it's actually built into the payment platform itself, which makes it much more interesting, I think. Right. And I think that actually adds another reason why you would go into the app regularly, because what if there's like a completely different boost, you know, or what if like I'm about to go to Starbucks? Oh, but let me check my cash app just to see if I could have a boost. And then you end up like, you know, going into it and then you have to, of course, use your cash app to transact. And now cash app has kind of like found its way, wormed its way into the Starbucks transaction where normally it wouldn't have wormed its way into that transaction. Exactly, um, And that's and, where Venmo doesn't play. Cause you're yeah. not, like you said, you're not opening Venmo other than to make a peer to peer transaction yep. for cash app. You could open cash app for a million reasons, many, many times a day. Yeah. And you know, on a mobile level, you know, you're now you're talking about active users, which is yeah. very different than like, I have an account. Uh, and that that gives it so much more growth potential uh, because yeah. and but also again more competitors right now you're you're your brokerage you're you know you're a bitcoin yep. trading platform you're a you know marketing tool um but again it just so much potential there in that market as they keep adding different features and functions yeah and you know this kind of like in my my research one thing that i came across was something very super interesting right which is that if you look at traditional banks, of which I think ultimately Square is trying to, and it's not, it's kind of implying that it will end up com- like at scale competing against traditional banks. Like if you look at a traditional bank like Wells Fargo or Bank of America or JP Morgan Chase, um, the average revenue, I'm not talking about profit, I'm just talking about revenue that each of these banks collects 
per active digital, like mobile uh, consumer um, or customer is on the order of $880 per year. And that's a combination from the, um, the, 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 the loan revenue that they'll make just holding your money while you keep it in the bank to um, service fees for random things um, and also transaction fees for, let's say, if you link to a brokerage or um, if you want to wire money or stuff like that. Basically, in aggregate, you know, these banks, these mature banks collect $880 on average per customer. And if, and I was like curious by that. I was like, well, okay, so that's what maturity looks like, right? Where is Cash App right now? And if you look at what they did in 2019 on revenue per active user, it was $25. So that's interesting to me. Like one thing about it is that if it's $25 in 2019, but these full service banks do $880, uh, what does that look like if Square can achieve similar stuff? And I did 880 divided by 25, and I was like, that's 35 times the revenue like per active user. And how many active users could Square actually get over the long term? There's like 330 million people in America. Like what percentage of those people could conceivably over the long term open up Cash App? and generate something like uh, some number between 25 to $880 of revenue per person, right? And uh, I, ultimately, I don't, I'm asking these questions, but I don't know the answer to these questions, right? Because these, this, this rests on something like the unknowable future. But it also speaks, I think, to the potential scale of the business. Um, I think right now there's only like 30 million active monthly users for for uh, for Cash App. I might be wrong on that. I'm just quoting it off the top of my head. Um, but there's like 330 million people in America, and we haven't even begun to talk about what would happen if there was some international expansion, like Jack Dorsey and his going to Africa and popularizing Cash App and Bitcoin or something like that, right? Um, and also, we haven't talked about not only growing from a small percentage of the U.S. population, but also on top of, of, of that, uh, growing the average revenue per user from, let's say, $25 in 2019 to some massive number close to 1000 And um, what if also the other separate question is, the banks that I mentioned, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, Bank of America, I have no special love for them. I have tried to actually do business with some of them. I intended to do business and I was working hard to do their business and they've deliberately made it hard for me to transact with them. So that 880 probably understates the true demand for financial services. And what if a more consumer focused company? like let's say a cash app, um, actually did work really hard and evolved very, very quickly to meet and adapt to the, the needs of the consumers and serve consumers in a better way than let's say, you know, Wells Fargo does, right? Could they ultimately yeah, think- in the long run get greater than $880 in revenue? And that would be crazy.
<laughs> Sorry, I interrupt you. Yeah, what you say? I think what I what I read from them, no, is the same thing. I mean, the addressable market for Cash App, I, I think I read in their um, in their own statement, they they listed as like sixty billion, which means they have less than two percent of it, right? So yeah. I mean, there there's just again and, and global expansion and everything else, right? Multiple currencies, the, the I don't see a, a limit there. For, for growth. And and again, even on a dollar of value per user, they're not a traditional bank, right? And and all the more so, you know, JP Morgan, you might use them as your brokerage or you might use them as your, you know, checking or savings account, mm-hmm. but they're, they're not doing your payroll. They're not cashing your, you know, maybe you're doing yeah. direct deposit, but you're not using them necessarily as your brokerage. You're not mm-hmm. using them necessarily as your uh, you know, is your mobile payment, and you're not using them to trade Bitcoin. We're taking our Bitcoin transactions Definitely over to Coinbase. Definitely not Bitcoin. So, yeah, those guys won't touch yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, no, not on JP Morgan. Good luck. Yeah, um, but I think the yeah. idea there is, you know, if you're if you're saying eight hundred and you know eight hundred dollars a user, or whatever, nine hundred dollars a user to, mm-hmm. to a bank, mm-hmm. these guys are more than a bank, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I think you're going to see that go up, but it's the same challenge you run into. I think you can make the draw the same parallel down to the uh, the seller business. Mm-hmm. Which is they're 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 working in the micro transactions. They're working with these small small companies, and yep. that makes them susceptible to swings. And it makes them you know it 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 uh, concentrates their risk, right? And I think you see the same thing in the cash app. Mm-hmm. Is at that value of user, it's it's a, it's a concentration of risk. I'm sure they're going to try to move that transaction volume and average value per customer up market. And when they do that, they're going to run into some other challenges as well. Although I do think, you know, I was poking around the product, uh, the Cash App, and just trying mm-hmm. to see, like, like you, I'm new to the Cash App, so I'm, I haven't been using it for years, and, and I'm comparing it to Venmo, but kind of just looking at what the products are and what they actually offer. They just started this thing um, for the seller network, and again, it's it's really this this interplay between these different uh, economies that they run. Mm-hmm. You can get a cash advance on your payroll, mm-hmm. right? Wow, through the Cash App. Yeah, you that's can get crazy. In, you can get instant payments uh, yeah. through the Cash App. Yeah, so yeah. like all this thing that, that there's just a lot of interesting. If you can be creative and and innovate within these ecosystems and offer synergies that other companies like your bank can't do, mm-hmm. the sky's the limit for this stuff. Yeah, and like the interesting thing about instant deposits uh, in Cash App, I was just thinking about it, is that it worked. Like you know those like like small businesses called payday loans that charge you like ridiculous yeah. interest to get your money earlier because you you know happen to be living paycheck to paycheck and you need that money really quickly but then you pay an arm and a leg for that privilege cash app like frees people from essentially uh indentured slavery to these like uh payday loan places like if you need your money earlier, just run direct deposit and get your money earlier. You pay a fee to cash app for the privilege, but at least you're not like, like basically like paying off a loan for the rest of your life because it's charging 300% interest and you can't meet run fast enough to escape it. Right. Um, And I think like that feature alone is something that the big banks could have made available but they didn't because the people who have this type of problem aren't important enough they're not big revenue drivers for these banks so they literally are letting these people be completely underserved 
and live lives of indentured slavery to these payday lenders who are essentially exploiting them as they're trying to like literally make ends meet. And um, that feature, I actually saw it because in the some research that I did earlier, I saw that I was asking myself like, where does Cash App? Where did Cash App get its initial traction? And a lot of it was in like say the Midwest and the South, like a lot of these rural areas where there's a lot of people who are quote unquote unbanked or unserved by the big banks. <laughs> and I can kind of see why, because if you can get instant deposit and meet your um, liquidity needs. Um, if you're somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck, but not pay these like super burdensome interest rates, then why? Yeah. Like, it's such a no-brainer. You would totally do it, right? Um, yeah. And so that's just one thing that they're doing to like make money, and that's probably some portion of like the twenty-five dollars revenue per user on average that they got in 2019. But as you also noted. Like with just enough creativity, there's so much more money that could be made on a revenue basis. Um, but really, like, like you have to be aggressive about growing. You need like the the number of monthly users to be as large as possible. And later on, as, uh, like you can monetize them. You know, it's kind of like the way Facebook was doing it. It was like Zuckerberg was running some sort of hyper growth, grab as many users as possible. It's like an open field, come in and take it and defend it and grab as many people as possible. And then we start harvesting their information so that we could sell it to as many advertisers as possible. But we'll just do that later after we've harvested everybody in the world, right? Um, and I think like Cash App probably have to have the same strategy. They need to spread utilization of Cash App they need as many people to download it and then begin slowly but surely um, increasing the number of interactions and engagements they have with the app and slowly growing this financial, this intimate financial relationship with the app. So it's kind of like a slow burn. I know it's fast growing, but it's got to be a slow burn. And you got to think in like three or five year timeframes to see what the true like potential of Cash App will be. It's the thing that actually like really excites me the most about the um, this company. Um, yeah, and you know what's nice is they have the cash to promote it, right? And so you know what you need to market this kind of product and and make it uh, you know top of mind, right? I, I've heard more ads for Cash App. They advertise aggressively on podcasts and on. Uh, on digital, you know, I see, I've seen ads almost everywhere, uh, but really on podcasts, pretty heavy. Um, I don't, I can't think of a single Venmo ad I've ever seen. Maybe one online, right? right. I mean, they're, they're able, they're able to turn that dial up uh, and spend significantly more, I would imagine, on, on marketing this cash app than maybe some of their competitors can. And that's a really great point because I'm going to just piggyback on it. It's this little tidbit that I got from the investor presentation in March 2020, page 37. So on that slide, what they're talking about is Cash App. And what they did was they took a cohort, so like a group of Cash App users that um, were initiated or just you know adopted Cash App in the month of June 2017. And they asked themselves, if we track just this group of people, how much did it cost in sales of marketing to bring them in and then get them to download Cash App? And then what was their eventual fate as you track them through the months and the years that they end up using Cash App? And this slide shows um, that 
it cost 1.4 million in marketing for uh, uh, Square or Cash App to just get these people to, you know, be aware of Cash App and like convince them to download it. So, you know, if you imagine yourself being Square, you're like down 1.4 million just to get these people to like put your app on their phone. So like what next? And, um, you know, if so these people download the app and they start using it and time they use it, there's some sort of monetization, you know, maybe they buy a little Bitcoin, they buy a little stock, there's an instant deposit here and there, you know, some fees. And um, every month that they use it, you're accumulating a certain amount of return of profit for every transaction that these people that you convinced to download the app in June of 2017 um, uh, did. And uh, it looks like, just based on this slide, that they got 1.6 million in cumulative profit from uh, these people uh, by June of 2018. Now, remember, these people, you spent 1.4 million to get them to download their, the app and just start using it, just get a taste of it in June of 2017, which is only a year earlier. And by the time a year has passed, these guys are using your app so much that they've given you back the money that you've, uh, you've spent to acquire them in the first place. So your ROI is like in one or one year, your payback period is in one year. Um, and that means then that it is going to end up being um, like fairly profitable and a good idea to spend as much money on marketing as possible. Because if you've got a one-year payback, um, all the time that these people transact after one year is just pure profit and grows to your capital. Um, and then you could invest that capital to get even more users who in a year will pay you back the money that you got and then keep giving you more money. And it becomes this like huge uh, compounding um, snowball machine. And if I follow up that slide on page 38 and you keep following those people, remember that they paid themselves back um, a year later um, and they keep following them all the way up to like 2020, um, those people brought 7.7 million in gross profit um, in three years after you spent 1.4 million to acquire them, you know, three years later. So uh, yeah, they, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, if I were square, I would take as much money as possible and try to grow this baby, try to grow this sucker as much as possible because once people get a taste of the app, they keep on using it and then they give you your money back and then you could just reload and get more people and then they keep using it and they give your money back and then you get more and more and more and more money and the, pretty soon you got more money than you know what to do with. So that's that's what I got from this slide. I thought it was a very um, interesting slide for the, that they showed here. And I think that if I were square, my strategy would be to reinvest everything into the business, run zero profit or close to break even for as long as possible until my growth curves start to slow. That will probably be like, like, like basically looking to dominate all of America. Like if there's 330 million people in America, I'm trying to get 330 million people to download it, right? Plus whatever internationals you can get. And, um, like run it break even or uh, for as long as possible 
to get as many of these people on board as much as possible. And then when you can't grow users anymore, because literally you've got, I don't know, like you're like Facebook, you got a billion active users or something, then you let the profits come to you. Like, and it's like a stream of money, like the Amazon river flows through like uh, the South America or something like that. Right. Um, and I think that's the same strategy that Amazon used. They were running at break even, reinvesting everything for a very long time, didn't make any money, but they were always growing the number of users. Um, and also Facebook was doing the same thing. They, um, you know, they didn't have make a lot of money um, and then they just kept being hyper aggressive about growing. Um, and once you have enough scale, you can monetize everybody. And that's what it looks like uh, Cash App specifically is doing. Um, so I think that's pretty exciting there. Um, so I guess to like wrap up this discussion, um, what does the future look like and what are our decisions about whether or not the, to go forward or not go forward on this? Yeah, I mean, the thing that jumps out for me is the, the multiple, right? I, all this stuff is, is baked into the share price. You're not getting a deal, right? Uh, mm -hmm. At least immediately, right? It just, it's trading it, I don't know how many hundred times uh, I didn't look, uh, but it, it's, 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 PE is, is aggressive, right? And I don't then yeah. compared to I just uh, looked, you I know, just so looked at its PE, it's four hundred P if you're if you want to talk about the yeah, PE. Yeah. So it's gonna take it'll, it'll take you four hundred years to <laughs> but yes. you know it's it's uh it's projecting all this growth in there, right? And you see, yeah. you know, we, you and I have talked about Tesla too and, and mm -hmm. what kind of growth potential mm -hmm. they have. Yep. I mean, people are seeing the growth potential here and they're growing, you know, much, much faster than their competitors. They're growing faster than PayPal. They're growing faster than, uh, you know, I don't know, like, I, what do you, what else do you even put in the category? Google wallet, right? Like they're, they're yeah. into it, right? They're growing faster than these companies. They're innovating mm -hmm. faster than these companies. They're appealing to mobile and millennials, right? They're driving digital transformation, which is uh, a huge global trend, right? So they're on top of everything. And, and I think all of that's baked into the stock price. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't feel it doesn't it feels like and, and literally you're buying at the very top. Is this the all time high? One eighty today, one eighty one? Oh yeah. Right now, I mean today we're recording on, on Monday, October fifth, and it was up six point seven percent ish today. If I max yeah, that yeah, I just high. I just zoomed out on the chart and literally this is the all time high. It's never yeah. been higher than today. <laughs> yeah, but the great thing—the great thing about uh, you know about about actually evaluating the future of a stock is—is is once you do the back of the envelope, it can actually be cheap, right? Uh, compared to its potential growth and potential earnings, yeah, uh, you can still get a deal on it even if it's at its all-time high. So yeah, you know, you, you just your your my initial reaction is just wow, like you're you're really buying all the you know you're drinking all the Kool Aid here, right? You yeah. have to believe that they've got everything they told you is growing, everything's great. We kind of went through some of the risks to the business, you know, core business, right? So, you know, macro economy, another global pandemic, right? Uh, you know, election, you were about to hit an election year, like what happens with, with that and new taxes and maybe lending restrictions. So you have all this macroeconomic stuff that affects Square more than it does maybe other companies in different sectors, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it just, it makes me wish very on pulling the trigger right this second at the all time high uh, at a, at a <laughs> yeah. 400 B company. It's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, when, when you're, you're, yeah, you're just, you're waiting in very murky waters, right? We just got out of, uh, you know, you look, go back and look at the stock market in March, 
right? I mm-hmm. think people people were scared, and and fear fear can drive you know crazy things in the market. You're looking at a stock that was trading you know, below fifty bucks earlier this year, right? I mean, yeah. you you've got uh, lots of potential volatility here. At, at its core, it's a great business. I would love to own Square Stock. I, I yeah. would love to own Square Stock, and 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 I feel very good about their growth potential. I think the the question is the horizon, right? I think yeah. you and I are both long investors. I, we don't. I, I personally, I try not to play around with anything, mm-hmm. you know, anything short term, right? It's do I want to be part of this business as the the story unfolds? This is a company I want to be part of the story. I think they're doing tremendous things. I think they have un- incredible growth potential. And then who knows? Maybe they come up with you know another another pinwheel of of an economy that they can dominate and and tie into the others. And and they've been able to do that now. You know, basically twice. You took a hardware point of sale system, mm-hmm. uh, and you you built the cash app. You built the square capital lending business. Like, who knows what else they come up with that can fit in there? Yeah. I, I love the business. I think they're brilliant. And, and there's all the qualitative stuff we didn't even really talk about, right? Their management yeah. team is is exceptional, right? I think right. they're, um, you know, the the you know people people believe in Jack Dorsey, right? He's a visionary. Mm-hmm. He's one of those you know, generational leaders. Uh, and, and, you know, the, I've, I've heard a lot of flack about him as an actual CEO, right? Mm-hmm. That he's, he's disengaged, he's running other businesses, and obviously he's with Twitter and, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, it, it seems like he's genuinely a good person trying to do good things. You know, I think he has a, a good, strong following. I think the, the management of each of the individual businesses is strong. I think the brand is very strong. Yeah, on the whole, if you're long, you know, yeah, it's at an all-time high. But if you think it's worth more than it is today, uh, even at that valuation, yeah, I'd be buying. Mm, Okay, so you would end up being a buyer today, even at the all-time high. I think a buyer today, even at the all-time high, and despite all the fears of everything else that we just walked through. (laughs) Right. You know, let me, I'm thinking about making a decision myself, but to do that, I want to do a little bit of math, okay? So the math that I'm thinking about is this. I'm just going to forget about the seller business because I don't care about it as much as the cash app, right? So I'm just going to value the cash app standalone business, and I just want to see where that takes me. So let's say that there are um, 300 million people in America. And I'm just putting a number off the top of my head. Let's say that they get 50 million people to start using the Cash App, right? So I'm putting 50 million uh, people in here, okay? In my little spreadsheet. Hopefully that's 50 million. Um, the <laughs> I'm just gonna put in the zeros because like the the little commas because yeah, I was trying to count one. them without the commas. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> so 50 million people. Uh, and then let's say that, I don't know, we were, I'm throwing out big, big numbers like 800. Let's say that they do mm, 250, right? So, which is a fraction of what mature banks do. But there's 250 of revenue per person uh, per year. And because it's like a high margin business, it's like software mostly. Um, I'm going to say 60% uh, gross margin. So let's just see what that looks like. 60% here. So I've got 50 million active users and they're transacting 250 revenue every year. And then we keep 60% of that for our gross. And then let's, let's format this number in here. And what does that get us to? 7.5 billion in uh, gross profit. Yeah. Um, and let's say that um, 
in an, another scenario, let's I'm just going to do a, a, a little bit of a sensitivity analysis here. It's the same thing, but they get closer to like $500 of revenue. So now it's somewhere between seven and a half and $15 billion of gross profit. Uh, and, and really there's not, I mean, you, maybe you'll like spend a billion in marketing or something like that. So really this, this first scenario in here is like six and a half billion. Um, and then the other scenario is like, I don't know if you're spending twice as much, let's say it's a 13 billion um, scenario, right? You know, like what multiple would we pay for this? So if it's still growing pretty fast, I'm just going to eyeball a 50 multiple. And if I take 13 and multiply it by a 50 multiple, I get 650 billion. Hmm. And then if I take 6.5 billion and I multiply it by that like kind of generous 50 multiple that I'm giving it, that's like 325 billion. So, I mean, if I ignore everything else, like this whole seller business, it goes to zero. And I'm thinking that it's got a fairly good chance of hitting like 50 million users, which is what fraction is that of America? It is 50 out of 300. I'll just do 50 out of 330 million. Uh, like 15% of Americans. Uh, and it gets 60% gross margins. And, you know, they do somewhere between 250 and $500 of revenue. It's worth somewhere between 360 $600 billion, like-ish, if you are willing to do a 50 multiple on that fast growth company. Um, and I, I look at it where it is today. And even at an all-time high, it's trading at $80 billion today. That's the market cap, right? So if it does like this, you know, kind of like middle of the road scenario that I'm running, you're looking at a Forex um, for your money. And if it does this scenario on here, you're looking at uh, 8x on your money, right? And then the question is going to end up being, well, how long will it take you to do 4x? And how long will it take you to do 8x? Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to say. But you know, if it does it in five years versus 10 years, your compound annual growth rate will be um, you know, fairly different. Um, so the question in my mind is, do, do I feel confident that Square will hit these numbers that I've proposed? Um, the second question is, is there more value that I'm not pricing in? And I think there is more value because I'm literally ignoring other parts of the business plus the international, right? And then the last thing is like, am I satisfied with this potential return? Um, and... If like I think about this thing here, so let's say I take the lower scenario where it quadruples, and let's say that I think it happens in five years, like it, I think it quadruples in five years, right? Um, that would imply that there was a doubling, like two like a like two doubles, um, that happened over five years. So it roughly took like two and a half years for every double. So if I do seventy two divided by two point five. I'll get something around, I'm just reusing the rule of 72. I'm getting somewhere around like 29% compounded annual growth rate on that lower base case. And just thinking about that is probably attractive enough for me to put money in. Like, uh, I'm not valuing any of the seller business. And I'm like, I'm not being like ridiculously conservative, right? These numbers are big numbers to hit, but I feel like they could hit it like 50 million user active users, 250 revenue, take home 60% margins and a like, like a low 
capital intensive, like software in business, right? Uh, I think I could hit these numbers. And if they do hit these numbers, I'll get at least 29% compounded annual growth rate. I could take that home and I could take that home to my mom and, and be proud of it. I think that kind of return. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think I'm all in. I'm, I'm not all in, but I'll, I'll put money into this thing. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a, that's a, that's a solid, that's a solid uh, analysis. Do this fall into the strong buy for the gill, or is this just uh, uh, it's know, not, a general it's, buy recommendation? It's, it's it, you know, it would be a buy with um, the idea that it's a good idea to slightly diversify. So, um, like, everything's opportunity costs, right? So, if you currently are holding an investment that you think will compound at something ridiculous, like 50% annual compound rates. And then you're looking at Square and you're kind of like saying, okay, my middle of the road bet gas is 20 to high 20% compound annual growth rate. Meanwhile, you're sitting on something that you think is going to give you 50%. Like it's an opportunity cost, right? Like, like why would you, you know, switch out of a 50% grower when into something in the, the, like that looks like a 30% grower? Um, uh, unless you know you wanted to just slightly hedge the risk that you're wrong on the 50% grower, um, and you also wanted to potentially capitalize on the risk that you're wrong, that it's only going to be a 20-something percent grower, and maybe something will develop over the long run, and it actually surprises you um, way beyond your wildest imaginations. So, like, really, the proposition is that it, at minimum, it's in the 20% compounded annual growth rate, but with a few surprises that you never anticipated, it actually is a lot higher. So, there's two risks there, right? And sometimes diversification can, like, get you to those uh, um, unexpected surprises. Like, for example, if you were doing this kind of analysis for Amazon in, let's say, 2001 or like 2004 or 2005, you might only just imagine what the profits would be from the distribution centers um, and then also um, like the beginnings of Kindle, because I think Kindle wasn't introduced until 2006, 2007. So you'd be like, oh, I wonder how this Kindle business is going to do. But you'd never imagine or it would be unlikely for you to imagine the massive gold mine that um, Amazon Web Services, their cloud service division turned out to be. It was just a twinkle in Jeff Bezos' eye in the 2004 yeah. time period. So yeah, it would never appear in your your spreadsheet, you know. But but it was an unexpected and very welcome surprise for Amazon investors. Um, and that's the kind of like unknowable risk that you can't even like begin to model in your spreadsheet, and why it's sometimes good to diversify amongst leading companies because there are some unexpected developments that might be very, very positive that you won't capture if you're only modeling on, on what you think is the foreseeable future, um, which you're limited right. on. Yeah. Theoretically, if one were to buy, uh, uh -huh. um, how much, you know, what, what, uh, what consideration do you place on the timing, right? Like, are you trying to Again, this is an evaluation, right? If you're looking yeah. at a, a almost the 29%, 30% compound annual growth, you know, rate return there, you're mm -hmm. comfortable even buying at this all-time high. But you know, looking again at a stock that was trading, you know, for a quarter of this price uh, not too long ago, yep. right? And yeah, and we should have had this podcast months ago. 
<laughs> yeah, we yeah. would we would look like a genius. You could have literally bought anything, and you look like uh, a yeah, genius. That's true. Uh, you bought that's in March, true. Uh, February. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you as you look at timing, right? Like, how do you see for a company that is sensitive to some of these macroeconomic issues? You know, it, like if we were buying in a normal period, right? Not an election year, not in the middle of a global pandemic, not in the middle of uh, you know potential business, especially small business restrictions. Do you think there's an opportunity to get a hefty discount on this in two or three months if things go, you know, south uh, economy-wise? I mean, and, always, and is it worth waiting? Yeah. So th- those are good questions. The answer is always uh, yes, there is an opportunity for you to get a hefty discount. It's just you don't know when and you don't know how. And um, uh, it, you could be completely wrong on it, um, that there would be a hefty discount. Um, and you... You, um, you know, when I think about this question, I remember something that in, um, Charlie Munger once said, which is that um, when you, and I'm trying to paraphrase here, but uh, it says, he says, I think when you quote Charlie Munger, you have to preface with the great. Charlie the great Charlie Munger, the wise Charlie <laughs> yeah. Munger. Uh, Pick one. <laughs> the uh, yeah, he he basically said that if you are trying to um, get a, um, a if you're trying if you're trying to get a twenty percent discount on some middle of the road company um, or just basically any company. Um, uh, the over the long run, if you're thinking about holding that company for the long run, um, the fact that you got or did not get a 20% discount um, actually ends up mattering very little in your final investment outcome if you hold for long periods of time. The thing that dominates your true investment outcome is actually the underlying returns on capital that the business generates over your holding period. Um, ultimately, the mathematical series um, converges towards that value, and you p- paying 20% above or 20% below at your entry point matters actually a lot less than you think at the end for something that compounds over long periods of time. So I think about that, and actually, that gives me a little bit of comfort, right? Because um, you don't have to sit there calculating to the most infinitesimal degree what you think the current valuation is. The true answer is nobody actually really knows what the valuation is. You can only kind of guess at the unknowable future. And for you to sit on your hands, you know, trying to like pencil out to six decimal places what you think the value of the company is and always trying to buy below that, it's actually way too much work. If you, the, 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 I think, as Charlie Munger alluded to, the Ultimately, the money is made when you're doing growth stocks for a long time. The money is made um, in the selection of the company, not so much in the valuation at which you buy. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's that's one of the easiest things to forget as a buyer of stocks when you look at something that's at or near its all-time high. It's it's very hard to pull the trigger mentally yeah. or emotionally, whatever that 
that limit is. But if you if you do put on the long lens, uh, it really doesn't make much of a difference. It doesn't. And people like tear their hair out about whether or not they're overpaying. They get pissed at themselves for paying at a high and then seeing the stock drop 20% later. And they're like, if I had just waited a week, I could have gotten 20% discount. Why am I such an idiot? You know, and, and that happens all the time. But really, like, if you've done your analysis right in the selection of the company, it doesn't like your entry point doesn't matter that much. And if you get make the mistake of buying at an all time high for like a local maximum and you get it on discount like 20 percent a few weeks later, it's not a big deal. Like maybe your emotions might feel like it's a big deal, but it literally is not a big deal. It's actually a good thing because if you have capital, you could literally buy the same stuff you wanted to buy it at a higher price, but not for cheaper. that's probably the, the play, right? If you are concerned about short-term fluctuations or, or near-term, you know, macroeconomic unique singularities in the, in the next, you know, months or even a year or so, uh, then just, you know, dollar cost average, right? Buy some and buy some more. And buy, buy some, some and, and then, then you always have a little least, bit less. Yeah. It'll keep you at least interested enough to follow the stock and dig a little deeper. Yeah. Um, and, and, if and it the turns fun part out, is you, mm-hmm. You might have to buy again at an all-time high, like a month later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've selected right, you know, um, and if you're a little yeah. lucky, yeah, exactly. Uh, you get, you get so, the privilege of paying more for the same stock later. Yeah, it's awesome. and then now you'll kick yourself for not putting more in the first time. Uh, so you'll, so basically, right. no matter what happens, you're always kicking yourself. <laughs> uh, Correct. Yeah. So I think that um, the the entry points don't matter as much. Um, it does matter to pick a good company. Um, one that qualitatively meets whatever you think m- merits um, the definition of a superior company uh, with a superior product um, and just have the willingness to hold it for very long periods of time um, and to deepen actually uh, your knowledge um, of it um, as you go along. And if something turns up where you don't like it, you can always sell. And if you have lost some money, that's okay because you can always find another opportunity. But um, you like most times you won't sit there and really dig deep and like learn a company until you've got a little bit of skin in the game. And if you suspect something's a good company, like a generational company, right? You would probably, it would probably behoove you to like put a little bit of money in and then get, develop your knowledge in that company um, and do confirm your conviction that it is um, uh, a generational company, an important company, like an Amazon style company or an Apple style company um, that can really change your financial destiny um, by learning more about it and developing like a qualitative and a quantitative knowledge of like all the ins and outs of the company um, so that you are ready um, to be um, psychologically strong if there's some sort of unrelated drawdown or some random mistake that sends the company's valuation down and that you're willing to accumulate more because you understand the company so much and you are have a long-term uh, perspective where whatever the short-term um, issues were don't trouble you as much. And you can only know what short term versus long term is if you, is if you've spent a lot of time thinking about the company and digging into what it what it what it does. So yeah, and it, this one does feel like it has that potential to be a, you know, uh, a, a life changing, game changing, you know, industry changing company, right? And I don't know how to to quantify that qualitative metric or or you know a statement like that, but you know mm-hmm. compare that to a, an an Intuit, 
right? That does a lot of the same things or, or, or a PayPal. It just mm-hmm. doesn't feel like those companies have whatever it is that Square has uh, mm-hmm. that, that will enable them to be a company you wish you owned a year from now, five years from now, right? Like in the same way that Amazon changed an industry or Apple changed an industry, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think at the end of this discussion, which is a very good discussion, we bounce around a lot of topics. Um, uh, I feel like I've concluded that I'm going to put a little bit of money in this company. Maybe not a lot, uh, like not a huge slug, but just enough to keep me interested and then follow it for a little longer um, and either decide, okay, I was completely correct. I'm going to put more in <laughs> and hope that there's dips along the way so I could put more in. Um, or if like I uncover something that like troubles me or whatever, and I realized that it wasn't the company I thought it was, then, you know, we hopefully exit at uh, close to wherever I was <laughs> before and not lose too much capital. But yeah, I think I'm willing to put a little skin in the game in this. This is a, this is a good first pick. Good first pick. Great company. Yeah, nice. Great story. Uh, I, I'd like to see them succeed, uh, whether you have a piece of them or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that wraps up our show. Well, this was fun. I had a great time. I hopefully uh, entertaining for more than just the two of us. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> There's going to be like one listener and it's you and me or two listeners and it's you and me, but that's okay. I'll, it's, I'll, it's probably, a labor I'll, of love. I'll probably listen to it more than once. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's fun. I had a good time. <laughs> okay. All right.